Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Kingdom of Bhutan, on the eastern edge of the Himalayas, is a country rarely visited by tourists. Entry is by application and extremely limited, assuring that only a select number of the most dedicated tourists meet the criteria. Here to discuss tourism in Bhutan and the challenges it presents is Paul Strickland, Program Director and Lecturer in Tourism, Hospitality and Event Management in the Latrobe Business School. Thank you for joining me, Paul. You're welcome. How does tourism work in Bhutan and why is it so restricted like this? So Bhutan is very unique that it is a recognised kingdom. It's a constitutional uh, monarchy and they're trying to keep their culture, their history, their integrity, but also increase their standard of living, Mm. incomes, and join the rest of the world through education, etc. So for that, they need help. And because they're not uh, blessed with a lot of natural resources, apart from hydroelectricity and agriculture, they see tourism as the next um, best thing that they can get people in working and get greater wages, which will have a flow on effect. So the actual tariff system is having high yield people come and visit Bhutan and that is the people that can afford it. So basically, it's a $250 US a day mm. per visa, per person. But that includes a three-star hotel. It includes a driver, three meals per day, entries into the zongs and monasteries, and also your passes when you go travelling throughout Bhutan. It is restricted, and there's only 100,000 visas given per year. And it's the only tariff system for tourism in the world. Yeah. So basically, that while they need to engage with tourism, they've seen what that does to other countries that just open the doors and let everyone in. Correct. They're unique and they don't want to be extremely exposed to Western cultures and what Westerners uh, do. For example, the king has stated that they'll never have a McDonald's present in Bhutan, Mm. even though that that might be something that a visiting Westerner might like. But the clientele they're trying to attract is at the higher end, three, four and five star sort of hotel clientele or people that like trekking that do have the money. Uh, So they drop as much money as they can for a short period of time and have little impact on the actual environment or the country itself. Yeah. So when did they embark on this kind of system? It's only recent in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? It did. The fourth king was quite visionary when he was looking at how to implement this system and they took many years in developing it. But it's only been in the last 10 to 15 years in five-year cycles. Um, So they're on the third cycle now Mm. of actually implementing it, even though they understand that the standards are increasing and more people want to go. They're capping it at 100,000 to keep that environmental impact as low as possible. And they're actually trying to get people throughout the whole year, not just the summer months as well. So... I've been there in winter and I'm the only person from a Western country walking around the whole country. Mm. When you go in summer, I'm one of 20, 30,000 at the one time. Yeah, yeah. And aiming just for the high-end tourist gives expectations as well that these tourists have a certain amount of luxury amenities that they're used to. So that in itself must pose a challenge for a country like Bhutan. They want to see themselves as being value for money, I suppose. Absolutely. The government was very proactive in conducting exit polls. So when they've got international guests that are non-Indian background, as they can cross the border uh, without a visa. So we're talking about people that generally fly in. So they've got a captive audience in being able to interview at the airports because only a certain amount of planes can flow out. 
per day. So they've got to have something to do while they're sitting there waiting. Correct. <laughs> and also, uh, I think they've only got currently about four or five plans that land per day because you've got to go with the winds. And after midday, the winds fly up, so you can't have people coming in and out the whole time. Mm. So they're very proactive in seeing uh, what they like and dislike about the country. And one of the things that they found was the basic amenities that Westerners in particular take for granted, such as hot water and electricity, weren't provided in some of the hotels they were staying at. When I first started going there in 2012, there was only permanent electricity in the capital of Timpu and where the airport is located near the city of Paro. If there was electricity outside of that, it was generated. Then you're dictated when you could have a shower. And some of the hotels, I didn't have any electricity whatsoever. Mm. So you had candlelight. So it was those little things that flow on that it might be summer and people don't get ice in their drink. The food's not uh, completely refrigerated or stored correctly. So they were feeling that the some of the food was a bit inadequate and it might make them ill. So they were reluctant to eat it then. And when they're paying such a high price, they thought, why aren't I getting what I'm paying for? It doesn't seem like value for money. Mm. So in response to that, the government legislated that any foreign visitor must stay in a three-star or above hotel. And they had two years to transfer over and have essentially a government official come through and rank the hotel. And it must provide electricity, even if it's by generator, it must be three star in standards. And then the flow on fact is the service standards go up, training went up. In response to the food, they used to fly their chefs over to Hong Kong for training, for example, in that two year period. Yeah. And now they have some dedicated schools that are they're training that bring it up to Western standards or foreign standards that are at the three, four and five star level. Mm. They'd also have to do things like, I suppose, bring meat in across the border, wouldn't they? Correct. So Bhutan is essentially a Buddhist country. Mm. So they eat meat, but they don't kill any animal. Mm. So most of the food is transported from India mm. and it takes seven days by road and if the truck's not refrigerated then you have problems when it becomes into the town. If you look at one of their butcher shops you'll see all the meat is just hanging in the window unrefrigerated and that is what uh, a lot of the locals consume and they're used to it but remember their bacteria in their stomach are a bit different to ours so they're don't really get sick from it, mm. where as we, who is not exposed to those sort of bacteria, we can get ill very quickly. I think it's time to explain why you go over there as a hospitality lecturer. So you've had a role to play in educating people in Bhutan on how they should be managing these high-end tourists. I have. I was fortunate enough to apply for a position in, originally it was the Royal Institute of management and they were having the Bhutan Middle Management Hotel Program. So essentially we were taking senior managers in the hotels, training them on how to train their students in expectations from both sides. So when they don't have facilities, explain it to the Westerners why it's not there or if they have them, then up the service to make sure the Westerners' um, expectations of what they're used to is there also. So through this program, which is essentially an 18-month to two-year program, they take 30 students per year, and we train them to then go back to their hotels, and they will train all their staff in their area. Mm. And those areas can be anywhere from restaurant management to chefing to in the laundry to spa management 
etc. And we look at service, service protocol, how Westerners' expectations are when we're dining in a restaurant, for example, and trying to increase that level of service. So at least for a foreign visitor, they're used to that standard. So if they want to sit down, they know that they get a menu given straight away. If there is a menu available, quite often in Bhutan, they just give you food. And if you don't like that food, of course, you're not going to be uh, impressed. Mm. But now they're realizing that having a selection of food is important, for example. That's got to be a, a steep learning curve for some of them. Having something like an electric blanket during winter must be such a far-flung luxury to expect. Most wouldn't have an electric blanket, but if they're lucky enough to, yeah. they would. Some of the tourists may. That was one of the things we had to try and train and educate, and it was a learning curve for myself as well, because the students didn't have it, so they didn't understand why the guest needs it. Mm. They're surviving. So it was a challenge, but they're now becoming more and more associated with some Western cultures as well. They've got the internet and television, and they see programs like Friends. They see New York. They see places in China. So they're becoming aware through just cultural interaction that these things are common in other countries. They're not common in Bhutan, but that adds to the appeal. Yeah. That's, in my opinion, that's why people should be going to Bhutan. But basic clean water, hot water, warm rooms, in winter in particular, they're essential. Mm, mm. And how did you have to develop and adapt the curriculum that you were teaching uh, for their needs and expectations? So... There is about nine of us that actually fly in over the two-year period with all specialties. So mm. I stuck with mainly the management and the operations of the uh, restaurants, not the practical side, the management side. But we have to take in the concept of gross national happiness, and that is uh, taught throughout the program, and it's all in English as well. Sorry, you might need to explain that. I am familiar with that, and it's fascinating, but... It's very unique to Bhutan as well, isn't it? It is. Uh, again, it was another vision of the fourth king. And it is a concept that we live in balance between spiritual balance and religion, mm. harmony uh, with nature, and harmony with culture and history and heritage. So the three pillars are based there. We have to put those all in, and that will make us a happier person. Just having economic wealth does not make you happy, but having a balance with all those things, which then brings on economic wealth, which will then bring on health and happiness. Mm. So the concept is, in my opinion, a very strong one and something to strive for. We have to put it in to our teachings because when I teach hotel management here in Australia, I'm teaching service on how to make more money. So it makes sense to you in your curriculum, I suppose. Correct, to put a, a balance in. Yeah. So just don't go for the money aspect because mm. remember they're on the tariff system. They can't charge any more for the food unless they upsell. Mm. So unless they put that in, um, they've got the, the money for the food in the restaurant just by dining there. So we have to look at other ways of making them happier as well. So having the balance between all it seems to work. And if you look at any of the employees, uh, they'll wear the national costume to work, which is Akira for a female and a go for a male and they'll wear that in all areas of tourism and hospitality government workers all school teachers etc and that's a way to keep the national dress going all the buildings will be designed in the heritage uh, that is uniquely Bhutanese mm. also their artwork is very distinct and then because they've got a huge spiritual understanding as well, we bring the principles of mainly Buddhism, but they do have Christianity and a few other religions there as well. But it's mainly Bhutanese that we have 
a feeling of sharing. Mm. And most of the dishes you will have won't be individual, for example. It'll be in the middle for everyone else to share. And materialistic items are not really there. So my clothes are your clothes. My toys are your toys. They have a good sense of borrowing and sharing. Mm. It sounds like you almost need to educate the tourists as well as to what to expect. You can. As they call it the last Shangri-La, you've got an expectation that it's untouched. Mm. And the tourists really go there for that. But once they've had a day of hiking in a natural environment, etc., they want to soak in a nice hot bath with bubbles. And when I first started going there, that was non-existent. Baths were there, but sometimes there was no hot water. Mm. Uh, some people, the itinerary is too great for them that they're constantly doing fitness things when they're there and walking around. Just to get to their hotel might be an effort if they go down to one of the supermarkets because the oxygen is only about a 60% capacity that we live at. Yeah. Normally, it feels that you're out of breath just getting walking back to your hotel. So there's things like that that you have to educate them uh, to say, take it easy, take mm. your time. I know it's a five-minute pop down the shops, but it might take you an hour return. Yeah. Those things, but the expectation for the majority are there. And in a three-star and above hotel, there is the internet and there is television and things like that now. So they do have the comforts of what they're used to when they get back. Whereas when I first uh, started going there, I, if I was up in the mountains on my own, the hotel was open, the restaurant probably closed at 8 p.m. And then I had to read by candlelight for the rest of the night, mm. um, ready to get up at 5 a.m. the next day. It's that sort of training that you have to also give the tourists as well. But once you've got them over that hurdle and say it's worth it, most of them appreciate the hard yards that they've done mm. just to get to a monastery that's halfway up a mountain or something like that. And what's the experience of your students? You've been teaching this course for a few years now. Mm -hmm. So you've had your first cohort and your second cohort come and out and graduate. And, and third. And third. And are you noticing effects? Are they getting it? Absolutely. So obviously with the power of the internet, we're still Facebook friends. Um, <laughs> and when I do go back, I go and visit previous students and see how they are. All of them have had a promotion since then. A lot of them are doing so well in their job. They've had work experience or internships overseas yeah. in places like the Netherlands or Switzerland, Hong Kong, or even Australia and gone back. So they're really reaping the benefits of the further education, but also in particular, the complaints from tourists from the exit polls have dramatically gone down. And oh, that's yeah, the, yep. something that the government wanted to achieve. Mm. So people are having a much better experience than what they did previously. They still have their challenges, but they're nowhere near compared to what they used to be when I started many years ago. So what challenges are they still facing that they want to address with their tourism industry? Well, one of the, the biggest challenges they have is the environment and maintaining a very perceived Shangri-La, as I mentioned before, but untouched environment mm -hmm. with the influence of Western culture in particular, cheap products from China and India, etc. We've exposed them to things like potato chips, drinking water in bottles with no recycling or no garbage collection. So everything just gets thrown in the river or down the side of the mountain. So in terms of education, that still needs to occur. We also have the challenges of going back to older generations that are living high in the mountains. They're so used to having a life based on agriculture and being self-sufficient, growing their food just for themselves and maybe a bit to sell. Because the wages are higher in the tourism hospitality field, many younger generations now are moving away from those traditional jobs, coming into the major cities in the hope of getting a job in the hotel, because uh, it's roughly at the moment three times higher than okay. what they would get yep. working in their family's farms. So that's a challenge for them as well. Another one is the 
dog population that they have, the stray dogs, in terms of tourists, because if the windows on their hotels are not double glazed, you can hear barking throughout the entire night and it keeps you awake at night. So do we just put extra earplugs in the hotel rooms and say wear them? Or do we double glaze the windows? Or do we increase the uh, sterilization programs from vets without borders to try and stop the dogs reproducing? Or do we do something against all their principles if they're Buddhist and go in and do a controlled cull of the dogs? That's a harder way of doing it because they've now learned to run away from nets and it's very hard to catch them even with the sterilized programs. Mm. What I've found in some of the research that I've done is tourists don't mind the dogs during the day. They're nice and sleepy. They're all on the footpaths. They're everywhere around because they're coming for the rubbish piles that haven't been How many controlled. are we talking about? Is it a problem? Thousands upon thousands over the whole country. Yeah. Um, but then at night they form packs and then they get aggressive because they've now not eaten, fight a lot and bark a lot and try and get territorial. And some of the Buddhist restaurants in particular put the food that's not consumed out as offerings. Mm. So they come right into the restaurants where they are and uh, people uh, are scared of getting bitten. And these are animals that might have rabies or other diseases and it is a little terrifying for the average person so that is a problem that will have to be dealt with in the future so tell me about your experiences in bhutan a bit is it worth it for this kind of entry code i believe it is it's unique everything about the country i believe is unique from the food to the culture the history their artwork their tapestries their national costume, the concept of gross national happiness, having constitutional monarchy, having spiritual leaders at the same level as the king, as the same level as the prime minister, that all works in a balance. So from that aspect, I think it's a fantastic concept. And the prime minister and the king and queen and the spiritual leaders do truly want the best for everyone, want to live in harmony, but they understand that to increase life expectancy you do need some sort of income as well. Mm. So from that point of view, this will continue. In terms of your own spirituality and your own journey, I love hiking in mountains. I love going up and just looking at views. I love just breathing clean air. I love a challenge. Zongs and monasteries, watching the Buddhist monks be so disciplined with their life. That I think it's all worth it. And they've got iconic pictures such as tiger's nest that does take quite a few hours to walk to but it's on the side of a mountain it's a practicing monastery and you can go up there and watch the monks pray but just the feeling of completing such a, a massive steep mountain when you're short of breath you're on top of the world and you forget all your problems of the world even if it's for half an hour to an hour however mm. long you stay there in that experience i find it absolutely fascinating you know, the way you describe it, people say that Everest is the ultimate achievement to climb up Everest, but I reckon probably even less tourists have seen the tiger's nest, for example. I would probably agree with that because they only opened it a couple years back. You needed a special pass. So fortunately for myself as a teacher, there's certain professions that are held in high regard, mm. I was able to get a pass for it. One of our recommendations was to increase tourism, was to allow tourists to go to this um, particular spot. Previous, they could only go to the gates and couldn't enter. Yeah, I've met someone who's climbed Mount Everest, and he's also done Tiger's Nest, and he suggested that Tiger's Nest is better because you can sit there and look and contemplate, you can pray, you can meditate, etc. On Everest, you might have 30 seconds to a minute to appreciate it, then you must move down for the next person to come up. Wow. So there's a massive difference between the two. Obviously, Everest is much harder as well, but 
I think you can appreciate sitting on top of the mountain a lot more in Bhutan. And you can see Everest as you fly in from Bhutan on a clear day. Okay, so you don't need to go up there. (laughs) I don't need to go up there. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. Uh, If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen to your pods. Please leave a review. They are always appreciated. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.